Welcome, welcome one and all on this fine, fine Sunday, this last Sunday of 2023. Did you know it was New Year's Eve? It's crazy. Uh, <laughs> I was just wondering about, like speculating on that as we were getting, I was getting ready for today and I was thinking on like what today signifies, what, uh, what this kind of a moment is about and and this is a day uh, for both looking back and looking forward. It's like this one of these transition-y, beautiful days where you can kind of see where things have been and you imagine where things could go. We, we christen the moment at midnight and, and we anticipate with great, hopefully, with, with, with great wonder at what God might be doing the next year. Uh, I don't know about you, I'm not really a resolutions guy. I think I used to, but I don't remember any of them ever sticking. And I like to learn uh, from what I've done in the past, which I think is one of the good things for looking back. Um, as I was looking back on 2023, I think there are two things that have stood out to me, two things that I uh, have learned quite distinctly this year. Number one, I learned just this past week um, uh, at the end of November, I got my braces off, and now I'm wearing retainers. Eh? Can't even see them. But I found out that in the, after you brush your retainer, it makes it real slippery. I found out that you can literally punch yourself in the gum with one of your fingers. I was putting that thing in, just lack it, woo, woo, and just wham. I'm like, oh, I learned that this year. Not going to do that again. <laughs> that hurt. Uh, there's another thing that I learned this year that I could not believe that I had never encountered before, that I had never heard of before. Um, someone put in front of me uh, a paper, a study that was done in 2009, um, and it was a study. It was a study by the Center for Bible Engagement, and the name of the study is the Scientific Evidence for the Power of Four. It's about a 20-page document. Um, it's, I mean, it's over 10 years old now. It's 14 years old, and I've never, never encountered it before. And this study talks about the power of, from a scientific, analytic perspective, with evidence, the power of to impact life in a day-to-day -day way, the Word of God. And I couldn't believe I'd never heard of it before. I mean, it's, it's, it's echoing what the Bible tells us. It's echoing what we know from Scripture is real. It's echoing things that we read all the time if we're in our Bibles regularly. Uh, it echoes the words of our Scriptures today from the Psalms and Proverbs. And uh, we're going to be talking about the power of and the importance of and how we can plug into and pour into some history around the Word of God we're going to start this morning, and we're just going to let kind of God's Word set the stage for us and kind of lay this foundation. I've got a couple of passages, uh, one verse from Psalm 12 and several verses from Proverbs 30. They go kind of hand in hand. So listen to this about God's Word. The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Now to Proverbs, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Number one, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Keep me in the truth. Number two, 
Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. And when I, when I think about that, 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 how that ends, like give me only my daily bread, I think of Jesus' words as he's talking to Satan, tempted in the wilderness. We do not live, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that uh, comes from God's mouth. That is, his word is our daily bread. I hope that we can get a sense of that today. Uh, as we begin talking about these things, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for loving us enough to speak, to speak into our lives by giving us your word, trustworthy, holy, um, instructive, perfect. Um, Help us to hear you when you speak and to take to heart what it is we learn. We ask this, we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... This report, this report, it's, uh, it's got a weird name, right? The uh, Scientific Evidence for the Power of Four. Uh, so this group, they had been getting some data about God's word that they found very intriguing. And it caused them to think, we should really do a, a survey. We should do a study on this. And the data they were finding out was really this. Uh, based on uh, people who track this kind of stuff, about 93% of Americans say that they own a Bible. 93%. There are a lot of people out there with Bibles, right? And then on top of that, you've got uh, other folks, people who publish Bibles, who say the average American household uh, owns four. So four Bibles in the average American household. Now, with those two things being true, you would think then that a lot of people are reading it. But Gallup did a study, and this comes from uh, the year 2000-2003, and they found that less than two out of five, so if you've got five people up here, less than two of them read the Bible even once a week. Now, if you think that's crazy, only 25% of American Christians regularly study the Bible to give them directions in their life. So now you've got these, these, this data that doesn't add up, right, for these folks at, at this institute. You've got a lot of people with Bibles in their hands, and you've got very few people opening it and reading it and engaging it. Why? What's going on? And so they asked. They started, they, they did a random survey, right? They call thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and they start collecting data. And the data that they are collecting reveals some interesting things that they did not expect. As they're asking the questions of all the people responding, what they are finding is that people who read or listen to the Bible four or more days a week are significantly less likely to engage in destructive moral behavior. And the way they defined that was uh, gambling, pornography, drunkenness, uh, illicit sexuality, or even self-destructive thoughts. And the statistics were overwhelming. And it was, it was crazy. Like, and, and what they were blown away by is like, there are, there are small decreases in those destructive behaviors for people who think of themselves as Christians and go to church regularly. Small. 
There are small decreases in those behaviors and those ways of thinking for people who uh, pray regularly. And there's, it's a little bit more uh, of a decline in those statistics for people who read the Bible one to three days or listen to it one to three days a week. But once you hit four, the stats just go off the chart, especially in teenagers. An 80% plus decline in destructive behavior or thoughts in teenagers who are in the Word four or more days a week. How did I never hear of this? Like, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer, right? I, I know that the power of God's word is true, and still, still, I'm reading this, and, and please be kind to me. I, I'm simplifying the data. These are, these are folks who want to put a whole bunch of, like, graphy things in front of you, and it's all parsed out in all kinds of different ways, and I'm summarizing it in, in broad scopes. But the negative things reduce as you get into God's word, the positive things increase. 200% more likelihood of sharing faith with others. 200% more likelihood of discipling other people's. 400% more likelihood of memorizing scripture. If you're in the word of God regularly. This is... This is compelling. My wife, as I was telling her this, because I don't know if you can tell, but this is exciting for me. Um, this is like, because it's statistically supported corollary data here. And I was telling my wife about this, and she goes, well, I guess the word is sharper than any double-edged sword. She's a pastor's wife. And, and I learned that this year, and I thought, you know, when you learn something really cool and something really powerful like that, it, it pays. It makes sense to do something about it. So we started having conversations as a worship team uh, about what we could do about it. And that's where it was born, this idea of digging into God's word together as a church. Because if you want to, I mean, we're talking about something powerful here. We're talking about God's word. We're talking about something that changes life, literally impacts how people experience life. Why wouldn't we be encouraging that? Not, and not just stand up here and go, you know, you really should read your Bibles more. But like encouraging it, like let's do something about it. So we came up with an idea. We came up with a Bible reading plan. You heard me earlier on the announcement. We're going to be reading through the Gospels this year. Let's keep it simple, right? Let's just pick something important like the story of Jesus and dig into it over and over again together as God's people, together as a church. Can you imagine the power it would have if God's people, God's people, not like the statistics are telling us where American Christians, only a quarter of them, will look at God's word as something to inform them for their day-to-day -day life. But if every one of us here in a church of, of 2,000 plus members, if we were in God's word four or more days a week, and we gave you a plan to do it. We gave you a way to do it. So we came up with, we're going to read a gospel a month for all of 2024. Now you're like, okay, there's four gospels. Isn't that going to be repetitive? Yep. In a great way. You're going to get through each one of them three times. We put together the plan for you. You can get these little calendars. You can find these at the Welcome Center. This is amazing, right? This is great. Check this out. 
You, you, you got the front page. You can put, it's got a magnet on the back. You can hang it on the fridge. You can hang it anywhere that's, uh, that, that, that has a metal. You put it on the outside of your car if your car is actually made of metal anymore. And you can just go, January. And when January is done, guess what? February. It starts tomorrow. Matthew 1 will start tomorrow. And if you don't like the paper thing, you want to you check out our website. I think it's going to be on the website. You can go there. If you want to get a daily text, you contact Sherry. You can sign up on our sign-up page. You can get a daily text every day with a link to the scripture. You just boom, hit the link. Boom. Matthew 1 pops up. Or two. Or whatever one we're reading. Now, you're going to notice in the, in the reading plan, you're going to notice that, that there's no reading on Sunday. Well, that's because we come to church and we'll be reading the Bible here. Um, and we'll be digging in, well, starting this year, uh, we're going to be digging into the Gospel of John. Uh, we always do a Gospel from Epiphany uh, to uh, Easter. And it, it's John this year, that's the schedule. Uh, but while we're digging into John on Sundays, we'll be digging into Matthew and Mark and Luke on the rest of the week. There are other days, sometimes the schedule means there are days off. I think in March, or in, in, in February, every Saturday is also off because uh, Mark, Mark only has 16 chapters. Like, how are you going to do that? I don't know. But it's set up so that we're in it four times a week at least. And we can do this together. Because it's powerful when God's people together are in his word. It's vital what we're doing. Psalm 119 says, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We know this. We know this. We need this. So I hope you join us. And just so you know, it's set up in such a way that, like, if you're in the middle of something already, a different Bible reading plan, go ahead and do that. Um, You can join this anytime. It's, it's just launch in anytime. And grab a friend. Drag them along with you. Well, encourage them along with you. Be a blessing. Because did you notice when you're in God's word regularly, your life becomes blessed. Now, because we're going to be doing this and because we're going to be starting John, I thought I would spend the rest of my time with you this morning talking about the Gospels and understanding like where they come from and what, what they're about, kind of some background information. So, so you have this kind of set in your head a little bit before you engage it. It's, it's interesting, kind of, uh, interesting information. This is the kind of thing that, that Pastor Trent would be up here going, I'm, I'm going to Bible nerd out on you a little bit, okay? Um, but it's great stuff, and it's stuff maybe you don't know, or maybe you do know, you've heard this before, but it's great for a refresher, and if it's brand new to you, Uh, you get some new stuff already. So let's start with the basics, right? What is that word gospel? Uh, It's a funny word. We take it for granted. We've heard it many, many times, but it's not actually a culturally understood word. What does that mean? Well, the word gospel is actually, like our American version of it is from the Latin, which is a translation from the Greek of the word euangelion. Uh, euangelion. Now, inside of that long word, euangelion, is the word angel. And the word angel in Greek means messenger or message. Euangelion, good message. When we say the word gospel, we mean good news. 
I want to tell you some good news. Good news about what? Good news about Jesus. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good message about Jesus Christ. This is about his birth and his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and salvation in Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about. This is the story of the gift of eternal life and how God reached down from heaven in a moment and reconnected a broken creation with himself the way it was supposed to be, reconciled a broken relationship. We were apart from him, and he says, come back home. This is that good news. This is the most important thing you'll ever know. I try and say that every time we have communion. I wish I, I, I need to say it more. I need to say it more for me. This is the most important thing you'll ever know. Fight to remember this. This is more important than remembering your kids' names or your anniversary. Gave you permission here, guys. When she goes, You forgot our anniversary, you can go, Yeah, but let me tell you about Jesus. This is more important than knowing how to ride a bike, more important than knowing how to do your job. This is more important than anything because this is eternal life. That we would know what God says about Jesus in these four gospel accounts. Four. Wait a minute, four? Yeah, four. There's four gospels. Why are there four? Um, well, that's a... That's a little bit of a complicated story. I'm not going to go super in deep on the, on the history of it. But uh, around the, about 40 to 70 years after Jesus died, uh, these, these writings to, to chronicle his life started emerging. Um, because when you're talking about the most important person in all of human history, you're going to want to write it down. And so people did. They started writing it down. And, and they're telling the story, and they're, they're articulating it, trying to get it, capture it. And they've got particular people in mind when they're writing these things down. And, and they've got particular kind of things that were very important about who Jesus was and what he did and how, you know, God was revealing himself through Christ. And, and so each one of them has a, a bit of a different kind of focus on it. And in the two, first, like, 200 years after Jesus died, you've got about, we, we, I counted, you've got almost, like, 50 different Gospels emerging. 50. And some of them we still have. Some of them we have pieces of. Some of them we don't even know what they actually said, but we hear of them referenced in other writings. The problem is, is when you've got... 50, and, and i got to tell you, there's still more after the first 200 years. People are still writing Gospels about Jesus today. But they're not canonized. They're not in our Bibles because what we learned as we started seeing, as churches started seeing these Gospels emerging, is that many of them were wackadoodle. Like people starting to make up stuff about Jesus because, well, when you've got somebody as, as powerful and, and, and famous famous and important as Jesus, you start wanting to get other aspects of his story. So people started making up stuff about his childhood that we don't know is true. They just thought, you know, this would be a good story. So they start telling stories of miracles when Jesus was a toddler or a trip that he went off into India so he could study the mystics so he would be ready for his ministry at 30 years old, right? 
wackadoodle. And it didn't take long, about, about 90, the year AD 90, about that time, churches were starting to coalesce around the four gospels we know now. Like, okay, you know, we're reading about Jesus, but, but this one, um, no thank you, that's not good. So you set that aside, and church leaders of the time are like, well, theologically, this does not actually mesh with who God says he is in the Old Testament. So well, we don't think so. This isn't safe to be read in church. And about the year 90 to about the year 170, when a guy named Irenaeus uh, steps onto the scene, you get it kind of locked in. In fact, almost the whole canon of the New Testament is locked in by about 170. Irenaeus uh, writes it down. It's one of the first times it's kind of referenced, even with the controversy around Jude or 2 Peter and the big controversy around Revelation. You're starting to see people go, you know, these are the trustworthy ways that God has revealed who Jesus is. And the church is saying yes, yes, yes to these things. And they're seeing bad fruit from the other ones over the course of decades and a century. And they're like, no, no, no. And so they set them aside because they're just not trustworthy. They are radically made up, blatantly heretical. They make statements that don't fit who God says he is. And this is all happening at the time that the church is really, really young. So there is a lot of competition. There's a lot of, we want to be influential. We want to be the people in power. And you've got this kind of contention going on. And it was up in, it was up in the air for a little while. It was up for grabs where things were going to land. And thank God the Holy Spirit speaks in and helps settle God's people down on the truth. And we have what we have today. So why not just one? Well, there was a guy, like in the 400s, he tried to condense the four Gospels into one. Um, that didn't go very well. So we have four. And they are trustworthy. They are faithful. They are true. And they each offer us something unique and important for us to know about Jesus, to know uh, of who he is, his uniqueness. Did you know some of those early wackadoodle Gospels we're actually trying to convince the early Christians that they could also be the next Jesus? Whew. Now, you just heard me say that they each kind of have their own perspective. They kind of have their own, like, focus on who Jesus was and what he meant for humanity and history. Um, let's talk about each of the four Gospels, and we're going to we're going to talk a little bit more about John because we'll be in John uh, starting next week. Pastor Trent will begin in John 1. Um, there are four, and the first in our Bibles was, is the gospel written by Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, Levi, the tax collector. And he penned this. Now, Levi, the tax collector, Matthew, uh, was a Jewish man, and so his particular audience was Jewish. He really wanted his people, the people that understood how he thought and, and he thought like them. He wanted them to know that Jesus was the king of the Jews, that he came to fulfill all the law and the prophets, that he is the Messiah promised for you. And that's why when you read through Matthew, you're going to get a lot of Old Testament references. So he's kind of got Jesus' timeline laid out for a Jewish audience. He is your king. The king. And then you've got Mark, the gospel according to Mark. This is the second one in our Bibles. Um, 
Mark is the shortest one, it's 16 chapters. It's very condensed, it's very action-based. The author, a guy named Mark, uh, he was not one of the 12 disciples, but he did go and do ministry with Peter. So he kind of had this first-hand account. He's hanging out with Peter, doing ministry. And many many scholars think that Mark was kind of put together and and really packed tight and condensed because it was really effective for teaching, it was really effective for preaching, and it's short enough that it would be the easiest of them to be memorized. And so this would be a great one to have kind of in your pocket when you know a gospel you would know mark have it memorized really focuses on how jesus is the suffering servant it's also considered the first gospel written we have evidence that says matthew and luke used mark to help them write their gospels along with other sources And finally, the third gospel, uh, Luke, written by, uh, again, a uh, non-disciple, not one of the 12, uh, but he was a Gentile believer. He was a doctor. He actually went around and and traveled with and, and engaged in ministry with Paul. His particular focus, his particular audience, the people he's trying to reach are Greco-Roman, Gentile in nature. He wants people who are not Jewish to know that Jesus is their Messiah too. That he didn't just come for the Jews. And Jesus was a Jew, so he must have just come for his people. No, no, he's for you too. So his, his focus is on helping others know that Jesus offers salvation for them. And you've got these three, these first three of the Gospels, and we call them our synoptic Gospels. And what does that mean, synoptic? I'm throwing a lot of words here. Synoptic means uh, having the kind of the same view taking or showing the same viewpoint. And when you look at the first three Gospels, they really have very similar timelines, kind of very similar structures. They treat things historically kind of the the same way as each other. And then you come to John, the Gospel according to John. Uh, The last of the Gospels written, written by one of the 12, John, the disciple Jesus loved, same guy who wrote Revelation, And this is a completely different focus. Um, Still on Jesus. But there's a different lesson. There's a different style. Uh, It's not so much a historical account, but it's more like a thematic account. And and there's almost like a different timeline. This is, people get all in an uproar because uh, in the synoptic gospels, the purging of the temple happens late in Jesus' ministry and life. And in John, the purging of the temple happens early. So what does that mean? Were there two purgings of the temple? Was there just one? Did he get mixed up? Does he not know how to do his history? Like, this is a grand debate. Much of the gospel of John is unique to the gospel of John. But what he was particularly interested in, what he really wanted people to grasp, is the identity of Jesus as the Word, the Word of God, the Messiah. He wanted people not to just know the man Jesus, the Savior Jesus, the incarnation Jesus. He wanted people to know the Lord Jesus. This is why he opens it up in in, in, uh, John chapter 1 with words that are meant to make you think of Genesis, to think of God. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. There are more long statements from Jesus in John about who he is and the power he brings as God in the flesh. More than a man sent to conquer foreign powers and oppressors on behalf of the people, the second person of the Godhead was sent to bear the burden of all oppression, to take the guilt and shame and sin off the shoulders of the children of God and finish the work of redemption once and for all. This is what John is focusing on. That Jesus was the sacrificial lamb whose blood washed away the shackles of death. All of the judgment humanity had been carrying since our rebellion in the garden. Yes, we as rebellious humans had to bear the consequences. Only a human can bear the consequences, but only God can deliver from all sin. When the people were waiting for a Messiah, they waited with a veiled understanding. They didn't know the Messiah would need to be God. But God did. So he put on flesh. The second person of the Trinity brought the Godhead to bear on every failing of the created world. And you're going to get to hear that as we unpack that all the way into Easter. You're going to hear more and more about that as you're also, please, please do it, as we also dig into the other Gospels. This, the good message of Jesus. And I hope you do it. I hope you read this together with us, that, that you participate in this. You're welcome. We want this for you so much. That the story of Jesus from each of these different sources would be given quarter in your mind and your soul. To become for you, as the writer of Proverbs said, alludes to become for you your daily bread. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you so much for loving us, for encouraging us, for your word which speaks to us. Give us open ears and open hearts to receive. We thank you for your faithfulness for not giving up on us. We thank you so much for the love that you've shown through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.